Luke chapter 10, now verse 1 to 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag or no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of our Lord. May he add his blessing to its reading in our hearts this morning. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, I am always reliant upon you for the communication of the truths of Scripture to hearts. 
Lord, I can't even communicate these things to my own heart apart from the work of your Holy Spirit in my heart. So, Father, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning that you would help us to have eyes to see, help us to see with the eyes of faith. May you cause faith to be stirred up in your people. Lord, and if there are those who, uh, who are here who do not yet have faith, may these words be used of your Spirit to bring about faith. May your word continue to advance in hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you send your word to accomplish that for which you have sent it. Lord, I pray, sovereign God, that you would be at work this morning. Help us to hear these truths and help us, Lord, to see with the eyes of faith, to see and to understand these foundational but, but mysterious doctrines of, of election, of the Trinity, the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of Scripture. Help us, Lord, to see these things from Scripture so that we would have thinking that lines up with Scripture so that we would grow and that your kingdom would advance in our hearts for your glory. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Well, there are some things in life that are hard to understand. For many people, automobile mechanics is one of those things. I could tell you a little bit about how a car works, but, but if, if there's something that, even something relatively small that breaks down in my car, I'm dependent on others to help to fix the car for me, and sometimes at great expense. Most of us drive a car pretty much every day, but, we have, but most of us have little understanding of, about what's going on under the hood. Well, what if I were to hand you the, the technical specifications of a Porsche 911 GT3 RS 4.0997? with 493 horsepower, 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in 3.5 seconds, and a top speed of 310 kilometers an hour, and a price tag of $200,000. It is truly a supercar. Now, if I were to give you that technical specifications manual and say, I want you to learn this, I want you to study this, and I want you to, to get an in-depth view into the, the systems of this car. A few of us maybe would be interested in this, but I think most of us are like, no thanks. I really don't have any interest in doing that. But what if I were to tell you that I'm going to give you this technical specifications manual for this Porsche 911? And over the next year, I want you to study it. I want you to study it so that you understand the inner workings of this car. And at the end of the year, if you can understand these things well enough to explain them back to me, I'm giving you the keys. I'm going to give you that Porsche 911. I think it's fair to say that most of us would spend a fair bit of time poring over that technical specifications manual. That you would become an expert on a Porsche 911, that you would 
pore over this manual and that you would, would learn about the, the engine, the fuel system, the transmission, the steering, the axle, the brakes, the wheels, the electrical system, the timing, the bulbs, the fuses, everything. You would become an expert on this Porsche 911 because you value this Porsche 911. You take the time to learn about this car. You take the investment, you make the investment of time and effort because you want that car. Well, this morning I'm going to be talking to you about something that is infinitely more complex than a Porsche. But this study will prove infinitely more valuable than a Porsche. This study will also yield eternal benefits. It's also going to yield immediate benefits, some of which I pray you experience even today. I'm talking about theology. Now, many people do theology like they drive, right? Many, many people do theology like they drive. They, they do theology every day, but they don't do it right. They, they, do, they, they drive theology, but they don't understand theology. Now, they're still doing it. Again, they're just not doing it right. And many people don't just misunderstand how, how theology works. They actually have a wrong theology. And bad theology has consequences. Doctrine has consequences. If, they're not doing, if you're not doing theology right, you're, you're headed for a breakdown, or even worse, you're headed for a crash. And again, theology matters. But theology is also hard. Right? Theology is hard. Having a biblical understanding isn't easy. It's, it's not a matter of just, just reading a, a... Sorry, just issues here. It's not just a matter of reading... A, theology is not just a matter of reading a couple of blogs or a book. Now, don't get me wrong. Those, there are good blogs out there, and there, there are good books out there. But in order to really adopt good theology, it takes the Bible. It takes the Bible. You can't just rely on, on somebody else doing the work for you. You have to do the work yourself. Now, again, it's my prayer that, that you are going to benefit from some of my work over the past week as we study this together this morning. It's my prayer for you that, that you will do the hard work of, of listening carefully and of really trying to to, to understand what, what, is, what, is, what is being said here. But having a right understanding doesn't just take work. It takes a lot more than work. It takes faith. It takes faith. Right theology is, is not just, just a matter of, of being able to recite the truths that are contained in Scripture. Right theology is a, is a matter of, of apprehending these truths, of believing these truths, and of, of applying these truths to your own life. Again, not just, just regurgitating what somebody else has told you, but, but actually adopting them and incorporating them into your own life and into your own worship. And it takes faith. You cannot have a right theology unless you see with the eyes of faith. 
Now this morning we're going to be studying Luke chapter 10, verses 21 to 24. This is a continuation of, of what we started last week as the 72 disciples, this, this group that was distinct from the 12, were sent out by Jesus two by two to go into the towns and villages that, that he was going to visit. He sent them ahead of him to prepare for his arrival. He sent them out to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and to, to heal, to continue the ministry that he was doing in preparation for his arrival. Remember, as we looked at last week, the, these 72 came back rejoicing over what had taken place. And, and we're not told the, the, the whole ministry report, but, but we're told that they rejoiced over the fact that the demons had been subject to them in Jesus' name. They're rejoicing. And Jesus affirmed that, that he had seen Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And my understanding of this is he's saying here that, that he saw that they were continuing the work that was promised in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman was crushing the head of the serpent. And a feat that would continue and be really characterized by, by Jesus' crucifixion and then would culminate ultimately at the end of all things when, when Satan and his, and his demons are cast into the lake of fire. Jesus affirmed that, that he had given them authority over all the power of the enemy and that they would be protected until their work on earth is complete. Now these are, are great blessings indeed to be continuing in the, the very same work and ministry of Jesus Christ is a glorious blessing. But Jesus is saying that he wants them to rejoice in something infinitely greater, even than that. He says in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that these spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus is saying it's, it is far, far better to rejoice in your salvation than your achievements. Even achievements in ministry. Brothers and sisters, your name is written in heaven. Your name is written in heaven. Written indelibly by the blood of Christ. Who died for your sins. You have been adopted into God's family. You are saved. Heaven is your home. As good as any earthly ministry gift is, as any earthly gift is at all, the gift of salvation is the greatest gift that anyone can ever receive. You can see most earthly gifts with your natural eyes, but you can only see the gift of salvation with the eyes of faith. This morning, I'm, I'm going to touch on four foundational truths in the scriptures. As I mentioned earlier, election, the Trinity, the Christ, and the scriptures. Now, these doctrines are presented here in Luke 10, verses 21 to 24. Now, we're going to be dealing with some technical theology this morning. But please don't let that scare you or make you tune out. On the contrary, may it 
cause you to listen more carefully and more earnestly. And if you feel yourself nodding off, pinch yourself. And if the person next to you is nodding off, pinch them. This is technical, but it is very, very important. I pray that you will do the hard work of, of tracking with me, of listening carefully, of, of considering the biblical evidence, and of applying these truths to your own heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, this morning we're going to be considering four cardinal doctrines, four fundamentals of the faith, four chief areas of theology that are vitally important but that people, even Christian people, often get wrong. Again, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Christ, and the doctrine of Scripture. If you're thinking this is a big undertaking, you're right. Again, I'm not, I'm not going to plan on going in depth into these things, but, but it's, it's my hope and my prayer <clears throat> that this will, will, will help to, to recalibrate your thinking so that it lines up with God's Word. And I'm praying as well that it will whet your appetite for more theological study about these, these cardinal doctrines. And I'm praying most importantly that through these things that it will cause your worship of God to continue and to abound as you consider who God really is from His Word. Again, these, these things, these, these four doctrines are difficult doctrines. They're, they are an apparent paradox. Our, our finite minds can't really comprehend these things. The, just think, first of all, the, the, just briefly, of, of the doctrine of election. That the scriptures teach that, that election is by the sovereign decree of God. That he chooses those whom he is going to save. But the scriptures also teach that you are responsible, that you must choose to repent and believe in God. Again, how do you work these things out? This is an apparent paradox. Or the doctor of the scripture. The, the, the scriptures are, we're, we're told, they are the work of man. As godly men wrote them down. But we're also told that these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that every single word that is there in the original manuscripts is exactly as God intended it to be. So the scripture is, is inerrant, it's infallible, it's authoritative, and it's sufficient. Now, if those things are paradoxical, what about the Trinity? That God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, yet one God. Now, if your mind was, was bending before over the doctrine of election and the doctrine of Scripture, how much more the doctrine of the Trinity? Or the doctrine of Christ? That Jesus Christ is, is truly God. And truly man. Two natures in one subsistence. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I'm actually okay with not understanding these things. But again, we, we embrace these truths because this is what the scriptures teach. 
We need to consider the, the whole counsel of God's word in order to have a, a fully developed and truly biblical theology. Because it's not just these four doctrines, but in fact, every major doctrine is an apparent paradox. I remember John MacArthur saying this in a class, and, and I just, wow, I said, I never really thought about that before. But as I've thought about it since, I can't think of any doctrine that, that is not an apparent paradox, that, that these things, they don't, from, from my finite mind, don't fit together. But again, Scripture teaches these, both of these things, all these things, and so we have to look at the whole of Scripture, have to pull it all together in order to, to synthesize as, as best we can through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now again, I'm not planning on going into a, an in-depth study of the doctrines of election and the doctrine of Scripture and the Trinity and the doctrine of Christ this morning. Again, I'm going to touch on these things as they're presented in these four verses. And I'm hoping and praying that this is going to, going to correct a wrong understanding, that it's, it's going to correct false understandings, that it's going to, to reinforce a, a true biblical understanding. It's going to make you want to, again, as I said earlier, make you want to study these things more and, and help you to, to worship God more fully. And I found myself, even, even yesterday as I was continuing my study, just worshiping God over the, the mystery of the Trinity. And I pray that's the same for you today. If you want to worship the God of the Bible, you need to study the Bible. You need to study the Bible. You need to study the Bible personally. And if you want to worship the God of the Bible, you need to study the Bible with the eyes of faith. You can only see these things through the eyes of faith. So then, in verses 21 to 22, we're going to we pray for eyes to see God's revelation. We need to have eyes to see God's revelation. Now, we usually think of revelation as referring to God's word. And specifically, we often think of, of revelation as the book of revelation. Well, the word revelation refers to that which is uncovered, what has is, is been made known, what is revealed. We'll be talking about the doctrine of Scripture a little bit later. But what is revealed here? Verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 10, God is revealed. God is revealed and God's gift of salvation is revealed. So verse 21, Luke says, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So first of all, in that same hour, it shows that this relates directly to what Jesus has just said about salvation. So this is linked with, with what we just saw in verse 20. So what does Jesus mean when he says in verse 21, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What are the, these things that the Father has hidden from some and revealed to others? What is Jesus thanking the Father for? Well, Jesus is thanking the Father for what we have just heard. For the fact that the disciples have their names written in heaven. He's thanking God for the salvation of God's people. And he's saying this is all God's good pleasure. 
And Jesus rejoices in this. Three times we are told in the scriptures that Jesus wept. This is the only time in the scriptures that we're told that Jesus rejoiced. In verse 20, Jesus has just told his disciples to rejoice in their salvation. And now Jesus is rejoicing in their salvation. Now the word that's, that's translated rejoiced here in the ESV is actually a different word from the one that's used in verse 20. And so I think here the, the NASB does a, does a better job when it says he rejoiced greatly. He rejoiced greatly. This word is found only in biblical and church writings from that era. It means to be exceedingly joyful, to exult, to be glad, to be overjoyed. So by using this word, Luke is revealing that Jesus' joy over the disciples' salvation is even greater than the joy that he is calling the disciples to over their salvation. So Jesus rejoices over the disciples' salvation. In fact, his joy is even greater than theirs. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus rejoices over your salvation even more than you do? We're told that there is, is more joy in heaven over the, the one sheep that is, is rescued than over the, the 99. Jesus rejoices in your salvation more than you. Because Jesus is also the beneficiary of your salvation. Of course, we receive as we're, we're the, 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 in one sense, passive recipients of all the blessings of, of salvation that God has chosen to bountifully bestow upon us. But Jesus is a recipient of you. You are his blessing. You are the bride of Christ. You are, are part of the inheritance that Jesus receives. You know, they say that, that the, the more costly a gift, or the, the, the more work, if you, if you make something for your beloved and, and you, you give that to them, the, 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 more, the more work that you pour into it, that makes the, the gift that much more precious. Well, no one has ever worked harder for the gift of your salvation than Jesus Christ has worked for yours. Every religion in the world is works-based. But the difference between Christianity and every other religion, every single other religion, is that in Christianity, you don't do the work. In Christianity, you have received the blessings of Christ's work. You are, in a sense, saved by work, but not your works. You are saved by Christ's work and Christ's work alone. So he rejoices in your salvation. He rejoices over you. So you have received the gift of salvation. You've seen the gift of salvation with the eyes of faith, and you need to continue to see salvation through the eyes of faith. 
When you have this kind of perspective, when you have an eternal perspective, when you see things as Jesus sees them, through the eyes of faith, salvation, yours and others, will bring you great joy as well. In fact, arguably, the greatest joy that you can receive as a Christian is, is be able to, to rejoice in, in witnessing other people come to saving faith. To the extent that we're having a biblical perspective, this will be the case for you. No matter what is going on around you, no matter how difficult life is, no matter what the pressures are, when you have this perspective, you, you rejoice in your salvation, you rejoice in the salvation of others, you rejoice in the advance of God's kingdom for the glory of God. Now some are, are prone to look for clouds on a sunny day. You can say, what a, what a beautiful sunny day. But the people say, no, there's a cloud. Right there, and the, the sunny day, all they're focused on is the cloud. But may we be those people who look for the sun on a cloudy day. And there's very little that can light up a cloudy day more than rejoicing in your salvation and seeing your salvation through the eyes of faith. Well, now let's look a little bit more closely at the content of, of this prayer. Look again at verse 21. Jesus says that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So the Father has revealed salvation to some and hidden salvation from others. God chooses some for salvation and passes others over. God has elected some for salvation. He has chosen the elect for salvation. But God passes over the reprobate, leaving them and their fallen wills to damnation. Now to some that seems unfair. To some it seems unfair that, that God would, would choose to save some and choose to leave others in their sinful state. But they don't understand fairness. Because fairness means no one gets saved. If you want what's fair, if you want what you deserve, then you go to hell. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. But God has chosen to save some. God has chosen to save some. His elect, he's, he's snatched them out of the fire. This is a, a supremely gracious gift for, for God to save anyone. So Jesus says in verse 21, at the end of verse 21, such was your gracious will. So do you see that? He's saying that, that this God choosing to reveal himself to some and hiding himself from others is all part of his gracious will. Again, so we're seeing God's sovereignty and we're seeing man's responsibility that, that the, the unregenerate, that those who, who do not come to faith, 
are held responsible for their actions. For their sins of omission, their sins of, of commission, for their, their whole life that is sin. Because whatever is not of faith is sin. The unbeliever can do no good works because the good works, so-called good works of an unbeliever, do not stem from faith. There's nothing you can do to earn God's gift of salvation. If you earn it, it is not a gift. So then who does God hide salvation from? He hides it from the wise understanding. Now he is not talking about smart people here. There, there are many smart people to whom God has revealed salvation. And many other not-so-smart people to whom he hasn't. This isn't about intellect. It's about pride. The majority hear the message of the gospel with stubborn unbelief. These people presume to sit in judgment of God and his gospel. But think about it. That's you and me, apart from God's grace. When, when we walked in our rebellion against God, we were doing the exact same thing. We were thinking, we didn't need God. I don't need God. I'm a good person. I don't need God. I've, I've done all these things. So that's you and I. We walked, you and I walked in stubborn unbelief until the Holy Spirit worked in our hearts. There's no room for pride. We have received the gift of salvation with the eyes of faith. So then where does someone get these eyes of faith? It isn't just a matter of receiving corrective glasses. At the moment, I'm, I'm shopping for new glasses. It's, it's not a fun endeavor. There's, there's too many choices and they're too expensive, especially as, as my aging eyes need more complex lenses. This isn't that. You don't need new glasses. You need new eyes. You need new eyes. And so where do you get these new eyes? God gives them to you. God gives them to you. And he's the only one that can do that. Faith is a gift. Ephesians 2.10 For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not result of works, so that no one may boast. And in the construction of, of that verse, Paul is saying that the whole thing, that grace and salvation and the faith to believe is all of it, is the gift of God. Philippians 1.29 is parallel. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should believe. It has been granted to you to believe. Faith is part of the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You cannot even see the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again by the Holy Spirit. I would encourage you to spend some time in John 3, verses 3 to 8. You can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless... You are born again. And Jesus goes on to explain that, that being born again is a work of the Holy Spirit. So where do you get the eyes of faith? You get them from God. 
Now, we just saw that the Father gives revelation. Now we see that the Son gives revelation too. That's part of what Jesus is saying here in the second half of verse 22. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You're tracking with me here? The only ones who know the Father is are the Son, the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Son chooses to whom He will reveal the Father. In his excellent book, Seeing with New Eyes, biblical counselor David Paulson writes, God's love is at God's initiative and choice. It is not given out of the basis of my performance. God's gospel love is not wages that I earn with a model life. It is a gift. It is a gift that I cannot earn. And more than that, it is a gift that I do not even deserve. God loves weak, ungodly, sinful enemies. The gift is the opposite of what I deserve. God ought to kill me on the spot. But instead, he sent his son to die in my place. Friends, God's salvation is only because of God's sovereign grace. Your knowledge that faith comes to you by God's sovereign grace cultivates humility. As you realize that you didn't do anything for your salvation, it was all done monergistically, the technical word is, by, by God alone. God did all the work, including granting you the ability to, to believe. You can only see revelation with the eyes of faith. And so rejoice in what you see with the eyes of faith. Well, so here we, we've seen God's salvation being revealed, but there's something else vitally important that is revealed here. God is revealed here. Because notice that the Father and the Son are engaged in the same work. The Father reveals and the Son reveals. This is the same work. And so what we're seeing here is, is a revelation of God himself. Verses 21 and 22 are, are, are so rich in the doctrine of the Trinity and in the doctrine of Christ. Now again, if you thought I was being technical before. I'm going to be more technical now, but please try to bear with me. You, you really need to understand this. First of all, notice that in verse 21, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now that preposition there that he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit means he rejoiced in the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we've talked about this before, that, that the ministry of Christ in the Incarnation was all empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then empowered Christ's joy. This is a remarkable statement. So Jesus was, was dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, in his Incarnation, in order to rejoice. And notice too that, that Jesus is giving thanks to the Father. So here we have the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father. These, the, this is clearly a Trinitarian statement. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all here. So God gives thanks to God the Father in the power of God the Holy Spirit. 
And notice also that Jesus refers directly to God as Father, indicating sonship. Jesus reveals the Father's absolute authority, that the Father is the Lord of heaven and earth, and that, that all things are in his sovereign hands, with as many other scriptures that speak about all things being in the Son's sovereign hands. And Revelation, as we've seen already, is in his sovereign hands. So then in verse 22, we see that Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And so now we see Jesus Christ, God incarnate, being given authority over all things. When I said a moment ago, he already has authority over all things. He is the one who has created the universe and is sustaining it by his sovereign power. As we talked about back in the, when we're talking about the, the birth of Christ, at the beginning of Luke, that, that even as an infant, Jesus is somehow holding the universe together in his sovereign power through the power of the Spirit. So here we see what God is, is revealing to himself about the Father and the Son. And so we're, we're now getting into issues of, of Christology, of the, the doctrine of Christ. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now listen carefully here. Again, the Father and the Son are one. They're one. Again, the Trinity is one God in three persons. Father and Son are one, and they share one work. Turn with me, please, for a moment to Matthew chapter 28. It's a passage I, I trust you're very familiar with. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, the, the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me parallel to what we've just seen. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus is again here referring to his authority. He's also referring to himself as, as part of the Trinity. The, the, the disciples are told to baptize disciples in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one name, one God in three persons. Now again, I, this, this is beyond me. This is far beyond my ability to understand. And that there are some people in this room that are a lot smarter than me, but it's beyond their ability to understand as well. And that's okay. I'm okay. And I trust you are okay with having a God that you can't fully comprehend. Can we strive to comprehend God as, he's, as he tells us to, as he reveals himself to us in his word? This is something that we are going to strive for for all eternity. All eternity will not suffice for you to understand the mystery of the Trinity or the ministry of, of Jesus Christ being truly God and truly man. These things are beyond you. and They will continue to be beyond you even when you have a glorified mind. 
but you will grow. We grow now, but, but even then we'll grow that much more because we don't have our, our fleshly desires, sinful desires, things like that pulling us in the wrong direction. One God in three persons. Augustine is very helpful here. He says clearly, the Son is equal with the Father, and the working of the Father and the Son is indivisible. However, in the incarnation, authority is granted to the Son for the purposes of redemption. This is because Jesus Christ has, has two wills. As, as, this, as this God the Son, he has one will, one will with God. But then in the incarnation, when Jesus Christ takes on a human, human flesh, and not just human flesh, but a human mind and human will, he, there is now two wills in one person. In one subsistence, as the Council of Chalcedon says. Two persons in one subsistence. Now again, this is a mystery that, that stretches our minds. But some I trust in the, in the stretching that, that worship will, will be the overflow as we begin to understand the, the glory of the Incarnation, which is arguably God's greatest work. But now people in their grasping to try to understand these things, will sometimes try to develop metaphors in, in order to, to try to, to help them to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Some of you will remember a few years ago when during the, the children's time at the beginning of the service that, that I, would, I would use various um, metaphors and say, well, the, the Trinity isn't like that. Even though people would, would say the Trinity is like that, if you might, might remember, I, I brought an egg. And people say, well, an egg is, ha, has a shell and has a white and has a yolk. It's, it's one egg in three parts. But that's actually heretical. That it's, that's known as partialism. That's partialism. As, as though it's saying that, that the Son is not fully God, or the Father is not fully God, or the Spirit is not fully God without the others. And an egg, the Trinity is not like an egg. Some say that, that the Trinity is like water. You might remember that I, I brought water in a, in a kettle, and I, and I boiled it up, and we, had, we saw the water, we had steam, I think it had ice cubes as well. So see, and some people say that the Trinity is like water, that, that sometimes it's like the liquid, Sometimes it's like the solid and ice, and sometimes it's like the gas and, and water vapor. But I explain that the Trinity is not like water either. That's also heresy. That's modalism. Where, the, 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 where God is said to be sometimes one thing and sometimes said to be another. And that's the view of the, the modalist that, that is, is common in so-called oneness Pentecostalism, that they would say there, there is no trinity, that, that God is sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, the Holy Spirit is more of a power. That's, that's the heresy of, of modalism. Well, some people say that the trinity is like fire. I didn't bring fire in here. We're not allowed to, according to the, the fire codes. But 
But some people say, well, that, that fire, we have the thing of fire, and it produces light, and it produces heat. And they say that the Trinity is like fire. That God, produ- God produces the Son and produces the Holy Spirit. Well, that's subordinationism. Where Christ and the Holy Spirit are, are said to be, to proceed, to, to be created by God. Now that is the heresy that is, is held to by the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses. That, that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are less than God. That they are created by God. You see the point here? One more. Marriage. Some people say the Trinity is like marriage. Well, that is also subordinationism. Listen carefully. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, some subordinationists, even within the realm of evangelicalism, say, See? They say that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. Well, that that word subordinationism should be a red flag to you. Because what they're doing here is they are, well, we need to think about what Paul is not saying here. Okay? Paul is not saying, he does not say here that the Son is subordinate to the Father. Notice his words very carefully. He says the head of Christ is God. Paul is saying here that headship in marriage reflects the relationship between the Father and the incarnate Christ. He's not talking about eternal relationships within the Trinity. He's talking about the the way that that relationship changes as the Son, as I mentioned earlier, takes on human flesh. Now, we are called to sub- wives are called to submit to their husbands in marriage. And I know that wives fail to do this in the same way that husbands fail to lead as Christ does the church. But in order for there to be submission, there has to be two wills. There has to be two wills. But because God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are one God, there is only one will. So Christ does submit to the Father, but God the Son in eternity does not submit to the Father. He cannot submit to the Father because he is one with the Father. That's like, like okay, I'm not going to say it's like anything. Stop right there. <laughs> Every metaphor, every single metaphor, if pursued, leads inevitably to heresy. It leads to heresy. Now, the creeds and the confessions of the church are helpful in holding together the biblical testimony and presenting them succinctly. So just listen for a moment, part of the the Nicene Creed from 381. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and of one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And then the Holy Spirit continues speaking of the Holy Spirit. And I believe 
the creed rather be continues in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Or the Athanasian Creed, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Now that's a really good, succinct description of the Trinity. It's, it's seeking to, to hold together the biblical testimony, the whole counsel of God's word as to who the Trinity is, as to who God is, as to who God is, even as we're seeing here in this passage. Jesus continues in verse 22, focusing now on revelation within the Godhead, that no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now this verse has been referred, referred to as a, a bolt out of the Johannine blue, Johannine blue. This is, sounds like something you'd read in the gospel according to John. In fact, last week, as, as Warren read for us, uh, John chapter, big chunk of John chapter 6, this is, that sounds like something that's taken straight out of John chapter 6 or, or John chapter 1 or many other places in John. John 14 as well or John, John 16, 15, 16, 17. In fact, this whole prayer is actually virtually identical to that which is presented in Matthew eleven twenty-five to 27. This is an important theme in, in the Gospels and the entire New Testament, that Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. That Jesus Christ is God's revelation. That God has spoken to us by his Son, Hebrews 1, 2. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 So you can see the Father through Christ's revelation of him in, this, in, the, in his incarnation. So rejoice in God's revelation of himself in Christ that can be only seen through the eyes of faith. So just closing this, this section, we're referring to the mystery of God's revelation, the Trinity, we would do well to consider the words of, of Gregory of Nazianzen. He said, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. And when I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness than to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Now, Gregory of Nazianzen is worshiping when he considers the mystery and the glory of the Trinity. So Jesus rejoices in God's revelation of the Trinity, and we also rejoice in God's revelation of the Trinity via his revelation from God's Word and his revelation in God the Son. So then rejoice in what you see with the eyes of faith. 
Well, finally, and more briefly, let's consider verses 23 and 24. Eyes to see Christ's benediction. Eyes to see Christ's benediction. The word benediction comes from the Latin words meaning well speak. A benediction, then, is a a well speaking. It is words of blessing. Now, at the end of the service, Pastor Joshua is going to utter a benediction. He is going to pronounce a blessing on God's church from God's word. Well, in verse 23, Christ utters a benediction, a blessing upon God's people. It is a blessing for those who have eyes to see with the eyes of faith. So then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Blessed are those who have eyes to see what you see. Now the disciples were were blessed indeed. Think about the things that they saw. They'd seen Jesus heal lepers and the blind and the lame. They'd seen Jesus cast out demons and calm storms. They'd seen him multiply loaves and fish to feed a multitude. They'd seen him raise the dead. They had heard him pronounce sins forgiven. They had heard him powerfully proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And they talk about back row Baptists, and I know... Hardly anybody except Kathy sits in the, in the front row. So that's probably not just because I spit a little bit when I talk, especially in these, these COVID days. But these disciples had front row seats. Front row seats for the life and ministry of Jesus. What an amazing blessing! And Jesus in verse 24 explains that, that prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus Christ is the long-expected Messiah. The godly Old Testament prophets and kings looked for and longed for his coming through the centuries. Think of the, the Hebrews Hall of Faith that, that Pierre read for us earlier. Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Isaac and Samuel, David and and many others anticipated the coming Messiah. But Hebrews 11.13, these all died in faith, not having received the the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They didn't see what those disciples saw. Peter refers to this in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Let's go there. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Who's First Peter addressed to? The church. 
Who is Jesus addressing here? In chapter 10, verse 24. Notice the blessing. He's not just blessing the disciples. He's, he's blessing those who receive their testimony. He's blessing you. He is blessing you. Now, you have not seen with your own eyes the things that, that those disciples, that the, the 12 or those 72 even, saw. But you have seen all of these things through the word of God. You have seen things that Abraham never saw. You've seen things that Moses never saw. You've seen things that David never saw. Now, of course, they have left this life, and, and their faith is now sight. But just as those, the Hebrews Hall of Faith speaks of those who, who have believed but have not yet seen, there's a sense in which, yeah, we have seen immeasurably more than those Old Testament saints saw. But there are many things that we have yet to see. We've yet to see the fulfillment of all of these things at the return of Christ. So we look for these things with the eyes of faith as those who have been blessed with revelation, with the benediction that even the Old Testament saints didn't have. That even the youngest child among us, the youngest child who, 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 who believes in Christ but doesn't understand maybe 5% of what I'm talking about here this morning, but the youngest child who believes in Christ has greater revelation. David had, who wrote half of the Psalms in the Bible, than Moses had, who wrote the Pentateuch. These are the blessings of living when we do as New Testament Christians. As J.C. Rowell says, the, the difference between the knowledge of an Old Testament saint and a saint in the Apostles' day is far greater than we conceive. It is the difference between twilight and noonday, of winter and summer, of the mind of a child and the mind of a full-grown man. Ross says, the humblest Christian believer understands things that David and Isaiah could never explain. Old Testament saints are saved by the same way that we're saved, by faith in the Messiah. However, what, what they saw as shadows and types, we see in the testimony of Holy Scripture. And so New Testament saints have a, a massive advantage over those who were born B.C., before Christ. So then Christ's benediction is confirmed not just on those disciples, but on you and me. Again, you have not seen what those disciples saw, but you have an even greater privilege. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago from the Mount of Transfiguration, from 2 Peter 1, uh, verses 6, uh, 2 Peter 1, 16 and following. That Peter and James and John heard with their own ears the voice of God the Father proclaiming, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. They heard God speak with their own ears. But Peter says here that we have something immeasurably greater. That we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You have a Bible. You have something that is more fully confirmed than even those who heard the voice of God from heaven.
we have the co closed canon of Scripture, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. The Apostle John finished the book of Revelation somewhere around the end of the first century A.D. And although men debated for 300 years regarding the books that are to be concluded and excluded from the canon, God had spoken. His word was complete. Now it wasn't until 1537 that through the efforts of, of William Tyndale and John Rogers that, we, that the Bible was then put together in English. And both of these men were martyred for their efforts, killed by the Roman Catholic Church, burned at the stake. We have the Word of God in our own language. This is an awesome privilege, and I, I mean awesome in the full sense of the word. Many people around the world still don't have a Bible in their own language. In many other places, owning a Bible is illegal. Yet you have the Bible, and many of us, even several Bibles, sitting on our shelves. But I hope and pray that that Bible is not just sitting on your shelf. I hope you're reading the Bible and studying the Bible, that, that you are looking at the Bible by God's grace through the eyes of faith. The 1689 London Baptist Confession is an excellent document for the fundamentals of the Christian faith. It begins with the doctrine of Scripture. And it's, there's a reason why it comes first. Our church's statement of faith also begins with Scripture. And, and over the next year, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at, at developing and, and honing that statement of faith. And, and once again, it is going to begin with Scripture because it all begins with Scripture. A right understanding of the doctrine of Scripture is, a right under, is a essential for a right understanding of doctrine in general. Because as the 1689 says, Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving faith. Now the creeds, and confessions, including this one, are very helpful, but they're not infallible. Only Scripture can be relied upon completely. So open your Bible and read. Open your Bible and study. And study to understand these doctrines. The doctrine of election. The doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And so many other precious doctrines. According to God's sovereign plan, you were born here and now at a time and place that you would be able to hear the gospel and be saved. If you were here this morning as a, as a non-Christian, you have heard the gospel again. May God give you eyes of faith to see. And if you are a Christian, you're among those who Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Those who will believe in Jesus through the testimony of the apostles, John 17, 20. So you see with eyes of faith that have been opened. You see again with the eyes of faith. And so you must share that faith with others. You must tell others, praying and trusting that God will open their eyes as well through your witness. What a blessing it is to be a laborer for the Lord of the harvest. You are working with the Trinity for the salvation of the elect. You can be confident that God will save his people even through sinful people like you and me. You can only see this blessing that you've been given. You can only share with others if you see with the eyes of faith. 
I want to close with the words of, of Josh Garrels in his song, Beyond the Blue. Stand on the shores of a sight unseen. The substance of it dwells in me because the natural eyes only go skin deep. But the eyes of my heart anchor the sea, plumbing the depths of the place in between. The tangible world in the land of a dream because everything here ain't quite what it seems. There's more beneath the appearance of things. There's more beneath the appearance of things, things that you cannot see unless you see with the eyes of faith. So by God's grace, open the eyes of faith that God has given you and look around. Look around. See as God sees for his glory, for the advance of his kingdom, and for your eternal good. Let's pray together. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you and praise you for the revelation of your word, for in your word we see you. Lord, we cannot see you unless we see you with the eyes of faith that you have given to your people according to your gracious will. Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you will Help us, Lord, to open our eyes, the eyes that you have given us, and help us to see and to perceive, to understand who you are and to worship you for who you are, to rejoice in this great salvation that you have given us and, and give us a heart's desire, Lord, we pray, to open your Bible and to read and to study these things for ourselves and to, to work through these difficult passages that we might grow in our understanding of who you are. And that we might be equipped to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.